This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Amanda Stern discusses her new book, Little Panic. Then PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habash previews PW's fall announcements. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. Well, we've only got a few new books on the hardcover fiction list, um, and uh, Clinton and Patterson are still holding strong at number one. Uh, no one can really stop them. <laughs> they, they sold another 120,000 units this week, mm. according to NPD BookScan. That's pretty impressive. Mm. And... Uh, Moving down to number three, that's our first debut on the list, Tom Clancy, Line of Sight by Mike Madden. This is Madden's second Jack Ryan Jr. novel in the Clancy franchise, and uh, it's set in the shattered remains of the former Yugoslavia. Our review says it struggles to give a coherent picture of the politics of that troubled region, and only a nostalgic love of these aging characters will induce readers to plow through the formulaic plot to the unsurprising ending. So... Uh, not a terribly positive review there, but you know, still 20,000 people bought copies in hardcover as soon as it came out. So um, definitely still got plenty of fans, and the Tom Clancy name still sells a lot of books. Yeah. Uh, moving down to number six, The Pharaoh Key, a Gideon Crew novel by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. Uh, we say this is an entertaining book, the fifth one in the Gideon Crew series. Uh, Gideon is a professional thief. His courageous sidekick, Manuel Garza, um, they come from New York City uh, to Egypt in search of a treasure. And uh, we say that the authors keep the tone light and the reader guessing right up to the open ending, which leaves some major plot points unresolved. So clearly uh, some temptation to keep reading the series there. At number seven, Before the Storm by Christy Golden. This is the 18th World of Warcraft tie-in novel, and uh, we don't have a review of it because PW does not review tie-ins, but uh, definitely one that a lot of the, the World of Warcraft novelization series fans will want to pick up. And uh, according to the jacket copy, this one picks up right after the climactic events of Shadows of Argus, and it tells uh, the story of what will happen when the, the heroes uh, are recovering from the battle uh, against the demons. So... World of Warcraft is, uh, as the name implies, a sort of Dungeons and Dragons-like role-playing game, and uh, there's there's plenty there to entertain fans of epic fantasy in uh, in these tie-in books. And finally, at number fifteen, A Place for Us by Fatima Farin Mirza, and uh, we see that bonds of faith and family strengthen and strangle in this promising but flawed debut set in a close-knit Indian Muslim community in California. And uh, we say that Mirza displays a particular talent for rendering her character's innermost emotional lives, signaling a writer to watch. So definitely one to keep an eye out for, and uh, nice to see a debut come out so high on the list. 
that's it for fiction. All right. Well, on nonfiction, we have one debut title, and that's The Power of a Positive Team, Principles and Practices that Make Great Teams Great by John Gordon. We don't have a review of that, but that is the only book uh, debuting on the nonfiction. But I do want to mention one book that is the number two book in the country right now, and it was a book that was published uh, originally in 2000, and this is Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. Now, Anthony Bourdain died on uh, June 8th. And this book has sold so far about 66,000 copies uh, in a single week, which is more than it sold in 2016 and 17 combined. Uh, so Bourdain has really, I, I think I mentioned before, influenced. That book influenced pretty much every book about kitchens uh, and cooking that has come since. And I want to just read a little bit about uh, a, a little bit of our review. I want to quote our review from 2000 uh, from that book. His fast lane personality and glee in recounting sophomore kitchen pranks might be unbearable were it not for two things. Bourdain is as unsparingly acerbic with himself as he is with others, and he exhibits a sincere and profound love of good food. And other titles that have come out are seeing a little bump right now is medium raw which uh sold more than 10,000 copies in print so that was basically you know the big the big news on the um, uh on the on the bestseller list this this week i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella and this is publishers weekly radio next up amanda stern tells us how she found ways to cope with and even befriend her lifelong anxiety disorder we'll be right back i'm mark oshiro author of Anger is a Gift, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Amanda Stern in the office with us. Her new book is Little Panic. Hello, Amanda. So glad you could join us. Well, hello. It's nice to be here. So you've experienced panic disorder for, for more than 20 years now, but uh, and, and but you only recently uh, started to get treatment. How did you go about doing it? What made you decide to do it? Well, I actually started getting treatment when I was in my mid-20s. So I went 25 years without being diagnosed or treated for a panic disorder. Um, so what happens is when you have an untreated panic disorder, um, after a period of time, it branches off and it becomes other disorders. Um, so by the time I was 25, I, I had a whole host of other issues. So I had social anxiety and I had, um, I basically had agoraphobia. I couldn't leave the house. Um, and I was deeply depressed mm. and, um, in psychology parlance, mm -hmm. um, depression is comorbid with anxiety. So it's a common thing that happened. So I, um, was deeply depressed and at 25, I was, I became suicidal and that is when, um, <clears throat> I, called my mom and I said I I need help and so she sent me to her therapist mm -hmm. and I went to her therapist and um, he asked me to explain my symptoms and I told him and he said how long has this been going on and I told him and, and like in under three minutes he, he said uh, you have a panic disorder and I just like wrote I levitated out of the seat I was so like free I felt so, like, validated. 
So and what were some of the, the, the symptoms that you were experiencing or what were your experiences? So initially when I was young, the experience, so the, the panic, um, presents itself differently in young kids than it does in adults. And when I was little, it was really somatic. It was all in my body. And, um, I was, I was like afraid to feel my body because it's where all the dread was. And it felt like, um, basically like my entire body was filled with pins and needles Mm. and like hot pins and needles. And, um, I was, I, don't know if I took like an actual full breath until I was 25. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, my breathing was really shallow and I floated away all the time from my body. I like felt like I was up floating away. It's called depersonalization. Wow. Um, and that happens to a lot of kids um, right. who have some form of trauma. And um, so that happened to me a lot. And um yeah, so it was just this, I was just filled with uh, dread, but it was not just in my body, it was around my body. It was everywhere I moved. It was my world was dread. Mm. And it just was relentless and I had little pockets where I I was free of it, but the the pockets were few and far between. Oh. So, and as an adult, it um what happens, the difference is that um you 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 know more, you have more information about the world and what can happen to a person. So when you're older, when you have a panic attack, you, you really think you're dying. You think you're having a heart attack. You think that you're, you're going to stop breathing. And so that's how it changes. Um, you, you become really aware of your own death in, in a profound way. Instead of fearing it, you're like, I am actively dying. Mm -hmm. The childhood experiences you described sound absolutely awful, and I, I have a, I have trouble imagining that uh, a kid who told an adult about experiences like that wouldn't get at least some kind of support or suggestion that maybe this wasn't normal. Uh, what what were your experiences at the time? Were you able to reach out for help? Did you just think it was normal because it was your life all the time? No, I I knew it wasn't normal. I knew that the people around me didn't feel the way I felt and that people weren't as afraid to leave their mom alone. My fear was that if I left my mom, she would die or disappear or forget she had children. And so I was constantly shadowing her. And I would look out the window at night to make sure she wasn't leaving the house and like escaping. Um, and, And I knew that my friends did not engage in this behavior Mm. um and i also would we would go to my father's house every other weekend which was uptown and my siblings would sort of joyfully uh, anticipate this departure and i didn't um every week was like starting from scratch and um i i was you know i called it the countdown and i had different um levels of countdown towards you know on the way to go in my father's house. So I knew that it was something was up, um, but it was, it felt shameful. And I think it felt shameful because no one did anything, even though I was constantly, I mean, I didn't have the emotional vocabulary. You know, I couldn't say, I feel dread. I, I, but what I could say is, you know, I'm, I don't want to, I can't go. I, 
you're going to die. Something's going to happen to you. Like my worries were pretty clear, but, um, you know, I articulated my actual fears, but they seem so unreasonable that, um, the adults around me were like, that's not going to happen. And that wasn't helpful mm-hmm. to me. And you had, you write about one, well, a couple of incidents, but one that we just talked about in here. And this is with the, uh, and this ties into what you, you, the, the anxiety you were already feeling, but this is something that happened in the real world, in the neighborhood in which you grew up in Soho. And this is the kidnapping of a little boy, uh, Eton, which who's recently been in the papers. Tell us about that. And, and as you wrote about it in your book. So, um, so as I was saying, my fears were that my mom would die or disappear. And I was also um, really afraid that I would die or disappear. And I became sort of preoccupied with all the ways that people could disappear and kidnapping was one of them. And um, when Eitan went missing, I um, the, the police came to our house mm-hmm. and um, wow. they came to search the house and I answered the door. And so I was shown a picture of him and I knew instantly that something really terrible had happened. And I, I also instantly wanted to be the one to find him. Mm -hmm. And I knew that this meant that the world that I feared was, was actually the world I was living in. Mm -hmm. And that, that the, the things that the adults were telling me weren't, uh, I didn't need to worry about were actually true. And I, and I was right to worry about right. what I worried about. Right. So it validated everything that I feared and it made me distrust adults even more. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, I was, I, so one of the features of having anxiety is a, is a hypersensitivity. And I over identify with pain with people who are suffering emotionally and I have always been like that, and I will always be like that. And I, oh, I, I over-identified with Aton's separation from his parents, and I felt it in my own body. And I, I needed, um, I needed to sort of repair that, that, um, that suffering in in me because I knew if I felt it, then. What he felt was just 85 times worse, and what his mom must have felt was 85 times worse. And I, I wanted to be the one to, to turn the world back into what I really wanted it to be, the one that the adults were telling me existed, but actually didn't. Mm. What you're describing sounds so familiar to me as someone who's also dealt with anxieties that I was told were irrational Mm-hmm. And uh, that that would never, ever happen. And in fact, what people meant was the odds of that happening are low. Right. And when it, and when it did happen, I, all I knew was that the never, ever was a lie. Uh, right. So I, 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 have such, I have such feeling for that child. You're, I was in my 20s when my worst fear came true. And yeah. um, I can't even imagine going through that as a kid. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really, really painful. It was tough. And, you know, it's funny, it's not funny, but I, I had a really, really hard childhood, but not for the reasons that kids normally, adults normally say they had a hard childhood Mm -hmm. for, you know, mine was, was hard because for me being a child was awful. Um, Mm -hmm. and not because I was, you know, severely abused or, you know, um, 
or anything along those lines. But um, yeah, it was. I really hated being a child. It was. It was awful. And you also had a close friend who who died of a brain tumor that you write about. Yeah. Tell us about that. So um, that's a spoiler alert. Uh, Melissa Scully, that is her actual real name, mm-hmm. um, was my best friend, and she um, got sick very suddenly in third grade. And um, I uh, was clearly very worried, but I was told she was not going to die, that you know what she had, she couldn't die from. And it turned out she had a brain tumor, and she did die. And it happened. So the the scenario was that I was being sent away for the first time for the summer um, ever. I was going to sleepaway camp for the first time ever. And how old were you? Uh, I had just turned nine. Okay. And I, I didn't, I was not ready to do that. I, I couldn't psychologically do that. And it was for two months. Oh, so wow. I was just really beside myself. And I had been living with the dread of departure for, for months leading up to it. And I was terrified that if I left home, someone would die. Right. And, you know, everyone around me was like, it's not gonna happen, not gonna happen. And, um, and I left and while I was there, my grandfather died. And then when I came back, I asked my mom when I could see Melissa. And she told me then that my grandfather wasn't the only person to have died when I left home mm. for the first time. But Melissa had also died. And um, oh. it was, it was, wow. yeah, it was, it was a sort of otherworldly experience, you know. Um, and in some ways, it's going to sound sort of strange, but in some ways, death made a lot more sense to me than missing. And I didn't know, I, I, you know, kids don't really understand the concept of death, but I think I did. And, and I don't know why, but I did. And, but I didn't understand the concept of missing. Where are you in the in-between here and not here? Like, where are you? And I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that. So, Aton's disappearance sort of clung to me, whereas Melissa's death was something that I could I could actually um, face and um, learn to cope with. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Amanda Stern, author of Little Panic, and Amanda's been telling us about um, uh, her childhood and a couple of instances that that really played into this this panic disorder. But now, so we're talking now, you have this panic disorder, but you also decided to go into theater, something that is so public (laughs) and something that that, that is anxiety producing in its own. Tell us about that. What made you decide to do that? Well, I had this, I mean, I had this panic disorder, but I also had this sort of inner conflict of 
wanting to be um, like out in the world mm-hmm. and alive and on stage and making things and um, I, I, and there were, so it was difficult for me to know how to do that because I was so terrified of it and yet I wanted it mm-hmm. and so I just kind of went for it and I there were, I did a lot of I, I don't, I'm sure there's a psychological term for this but I don't know what it is but um, I did a lot of like blocking everything out like I would um, it's so hard to explain but it's almost like I got through it because I was in a coma <laughs> you know I, I don't right. remember um, how I don't remember the exact ways that I coped, but I know that I did by pretending. I did a lot of pretending. And um, and I would play a character in my head in order to, like, get to the theater company that I was in. And um, I, you know, I just really wanted this thing that was at odds with who I was inside. And I... I and it's not all I was, you know, I was also someone who had a big personality and who was like constantly writing plays when they were little and putting on plays at home and making fun of everyone. And I like had a little stand up act, you know, I was like, I wanted to take my, my sketches on the road. And so, you know, I think that that sort of, it didn't overpower the panic, but it, it helped me um, move in that direction and make some of the choices that I made. And, and I also decided at one, at 25, when I had that, um, significant sort of breakdown, I, I realized it a real, real actual epiphany. And it was that if I spent the rest of my life fearing all that I feared, I would never leave my house. I would never have a life. And that the only way to live this life successfully was to face every single fear I had mm. and get over it or at least get comfortable with it. Because the truth is you don't really get over it, but you get, you get, um, expert at it. Mm. And, um, and so that's sort of what I did. And I think I didn't have the vocabulary for that when I was a teenager, but that's what I was doing was I was moving towards my fears in order to get over them. And I happened to be, you know, um, like talented enough to be a part of this group of kids in New York City who were writing plays and performing and and all that. So you had this, 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 uh, this hobby, this passion that was, it was kind of external, a performance one, a public one, but you also had one that's internal and that was, uh, writing. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about your writing. Was that, did that coincide with that epiphany as well when you were 25? How did that happen? And well, I've known that I wanted to be a writer since I was 10 and um, I've been writing since I was really, really little. Mm-hmm. And um, I grew up in this garden community um, on McDougal Street between mm. Blaker and Houston. And, yeah, Sounds idyllic. It was. <laughs> and um, anyway, I had a, a pool of 30 kids to cast from. So I was writing plays and casting them and producing them, directing them and like, you know, being a little bit bossy. And um, 
and I just I was producing I was like I love this so I was writing from a very young age and um and I just it, I've never really not been writing ever and for me it's like being alive in the world and presenting myself in the world is to have a persona and is to sort of play the part of me in the world or the version of me that people expect or the version of me that I'm used to playing or you know what I mean but when I'm writing that's where I'm the deepest most core um person you know I I I'm I'm there's no persona and I mm-hmm. it's it's there's no act there's no pretension I hope there's no um it's where I'm real it's it's where I'm who I am I don't I don't um I mean I'm I hope I'm sort of funny on the page but I don't in life what I do is I disguise all my sadness and my pain with humor it's just what I do and um and I do that in my writing to an extent but I actually let my sadness and my pain like actually be revealed more in my work than I do in person in the you know in the world when did you decide that the anxiety itself was something that you wanted to write about uh well that one's tricky so um I started writing a novel after my first novel came out, The Long Haul. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, I just I started to write my second novel, and I um, found that my story about being IQ test I was IQ tested a lot as a kid in an effort to get diagnosed, and um, mm-hmm. and I had test anxiety, so that really didn't work out so well, and. Um, so I started to write a lot about testing and I was like, oh, this aspect of my life is coming into this novel. Maybe I should start again and write a new novel just all about testing. So I started a new novel and it was all about testing. And then um, I was like, oh, maybe I should use my evaluations and my that I have, the real ones from childhood. And so I put those and I was like, no, this has got to be a, just a new book. So I started another book. So like four books in, my my life story had infected everything that I was writing. By the fourth iteration, I was writing about my anxiety. And mm. I thought, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go off to the side. I'm going to get this all out. I'm just going to get it all out. And then I'm going to write the book I was meant to write. But it kind of turned out the book I was meant to write was this book because I couldn't stop writing this book. And... um it just felt right. It was just this perfect synergy um, for me. And I I just, you know, I was terrified to do it. And that is why I did it. So, um, yeah. So a little just nuts and bolts of publishing. So you had this, you were writing this. At what point did you approach your, your agent or did you not have an agent? I mean, you did have an agent at the time uh, from before. How, how did this, this come about, this book come about from your idea to uh, acquisition and publication? So I, at that time, I actually was in between agents um, as well as boyfriends. Mm. And I, um, so I sent um, about a hundred pages um, of this book to four agents and said, 
you want to get anxious with me? So they, uh, two of them passed, and then two of them said yes. So um, I met with them both, and one of them was extremely hands-on, and I really like that and need that. And um, so I was like, all right, let's work together. So we did, and that's Bill Clegg, and, um, and he helped shape this book. He helped, he, he is an editor. It's remarkable. Mm. Um, but he really, uh, went through this book and, and like combed the, the thick hair out of it. And, um, and then when it was ready ish, I mean, I don't, I honestly don't think it was like as ready as it could have been when we sent it out. Um, but I don't think any writer thinks that anything is right. Right. So, um, Anyway, so we sent it out, and um, and the person who seemed to get it the most and seemed the most um, sort of genuinely enthusiastic about it was Millicent Bennett at Grand Central Publishing, and I, I really liked her. There, was, she was she's not like me. She's exactly what I need in my life. She's grounded and focused and centered, <laughs> and just like. You know, she is the same. When you talk to her, you know, in the morning on Monday, she's the same person as she is when you talk to her, like, late Sunday night. And I <laughs> need that in my life. Right. And, um, but she was also just incredibly smart about it. And really, you know, she shaped my entire life. She literally gave structure to my entire life. And... um and, you know, without her, I wouldn't have been able to do this. And without Bill also. But so that's right. sort of how it went. And um, and it was, you know, uh, it was really, really stressful. And, you know, the, the thing is, like, having anxiety about my anxiety book has been sort of this, like, hilarious, like, meta, you I know. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, experience. And, um but that's what it is. I'm just like constantly panicking about my panic book. And, you know, um, and I get sort of fixated on the next thing. Um, so that is, that's how that all went down. So I know you previously and most through your uh, very well-known happy ending reading series, which which seems to me a, a marriage of your external and your internal, your theatrical and your literary lives. Um, I, you know, there, there must be inherent in there all kinds of sources of panic. Um, wh- what is that like for you, he, he, both both as an artist, but, but also as someone who is reckoning with this in, in her book? Well, you know, it's, it's been difficult, you know, it's been difficult and it's been wonderful. Um, there are nights where I, uh, where I have bombed and, um, you know, people weren't laughing where I thought they should be laughing or, and, you know, and I'm always sort of reading the room, um, more critically when it comes to how people are responding to me Mm -hmm. than to everyone else. Um, so I'm, I'm always extra sort of critical of, of how I did or what I did, but it's not, you know, 
it's not about me. It's about the performers. And I want, I just want the shows to be, um, uh, I want there to be a connective tissue in each show. And I want that sort of have some organic life. Um, so that we're creating something in real time together. One, a one off, a limited edition experience. And so I try and focus on, on that. But there, there definitely are times. I had a panic attack on stage, actually. And, um, um, so I had, I wanted to quit smoking and I went to, um, a psychiatrist and I was like, dude, I want to stop smoking. Hook me up <laughs> with this thing that you've got. I can't remember the the name that they used. Uh, it's Wellbutrin, but it had a different, they mm. were calling it something else. It was it, the, the sort of marketing right. was skewed towards, uh, you know, cut cravings. So he gave me that, but he prescribed too high a dose. So I had took it like an hour before I went on stage and um, I I started to have a panic attack on stage. And and I think, I honestly think this is this might have been the time when I started being really open about my anxiety was in that moment. And I just made a choice and I, you know, I was in a room full of strangers and, but I was in this bar that I knew I felt safe. I felt at home and I was like, okay, hi, mm. here's what's happening. I am having a panic attack and I'm going to talk myself through it and you're going to help me. And we did. And it was amazing. And, um, I think that that sort of started me off on being able to, I mean, the, the worst thing that possibly could happen, uh, except for death, um, and then, you know, who cares because you're dead, but um, happened. And everyone watched it. And I lived. I lived through it. And um, so experiences like that, I mean, that's extreme, but just living through the really difficult moments on stage mm -hmm. is glorious because you learn that your worst fear happened, but the thing you thought would happen because your worst fear happened didn't happen. And you learn from that experience that you're a more resilient than you realized you're str you can, you know, you can handle more than you thought. Um, but also that feelings are not facts. You know, your fears are not factual. Mm. And, um, so yeah, so it's been great in that, in these sort of interesting ways. And I do definitely get something out of it performance wise. It, it really is a perfect blend for me. Like, you know, I was doing it once a month towards the end and because um, I stopped doing it I'm doing one more event on the 27th where I'm going to be the reader one of the readers with and Leslie I, Jameson yeah, and uh, and Alexander right, Chi and right. um, Amanda Palmer is a musical guest and Todd Circio is the live artist but I've never been the reader in my own series so and I have to take a risk which is you know I, I do you know about this that I uh, require all the authors to take a risk on stage. Yeah. So, yeah, okay, yeah. 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 So, so now I have to take a risk and, um, and now I'm like, why have I been doing this to these people? God, I'm awful. This is <laughs> I'm a terrible person. But, um, so that's going to be a different, I'm hosting it and reading in it. And that's going to be a, a new type of fear that I haven't had to face yet. Um, 
But I, I really like, I just think the more open and honest and forthright people are about their worries and their concerns and their fears and their panics, like the better off the world is going to be. And, and the better off you're, you'll be. It's just, I, you, you get better hmm. when you talk about it, you know? I don't know how or why, because I'm not a scientist or a psychologist, although I have pretended, um, but it just, it happens. Well, listeners, this is going to be June 27th at Is It Joe's Pub? It is. Uh, Alexander Chi, Leslie Jameson, and Amanda Stern will be taking a risk, so uh, join her and them there. And, um, well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, we've been talking with Amanda Stern. You can find her book, Little Panic, in stores right now. Uh, I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Havish talks about PW's fall announcement, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Tessa Fontaine, the author of The Electric Woman, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habish is here to tell us all about PW's fall announcements. Hi, Gabe. Hi, Rose and Mark. Good to see you again. Good to see you, too. Nice to have you with us. So I think you're going to talk to us mostly, if not all, about literary fiction, since that is your category. That's what you do. And uh, so tell us about literary fiction. What do we have this season? What did it look like? Um, yeah, this this fall, there's um, a good mix of um, established big-name authors and some exciting debuts. Um, so I'll just focus on a few of the ones that I think look particularly promising. Um, the first is uh, Killing Commendatore by Haruki Murakami, mm. which is his first uh, novel since 2014. And... Um, we don't have galleys for this one yet, so I can't really say that much about what it's about because I just have what the publisher has said about it to go by. But uh, it's a love story, and it is supposedly also a, quote, loving homage to The Great Gatsby. So that'll be big. Um, Murakami's, you know, massive. So that's that'll definitely be one of the bigger books of the fall. And I think it's also big uh, size-wise. I think it's like 600 or 700 pages. Uh, speaking of long books, also this fall is the final installment of Karlov Kanausgard's My Struggle series, mm. uh, book six, and this is out in September, and yeah, I, I can't remember what year the first one came out. It was a while ago. They were they were doing them about one a year, and then there's been a delay with this last one because it is so huge. It's 1,200 pages. Uh, wow. There is, wow. This is the one that has like the infamous like long essay within the book about Mein Kampf and Hitler, which is where my struggle's title comes from, or is at least tied to uh, inextricably. And uh, yeah, so this is a big publishing event. It's an indie book. Uh, it's Archipelago. Um, but yeah, it's like it'll be a thing that you'll see people carrying around very heavily because it's so it's definitely one of the bigger books of the of the fall um and then um always uh has an author who always has the the hot button issues in her woven into her stories is jody pico and she has a new novel in october called a spark of light 
and um, that one is about a gunman who takes hostages at a woman's reproductive health clinic and um, a police a police hostage negotiator uh, is called to the scene and he finds out there that his daughter is one of the hostages inside Mm. Um, so you know Jodi Pico has a huge following and um, this one promises to be just as big as her previous books Another big name author is um, Therese Ann Fowler, who wrote Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald, which I believe was turned into an Amazon show a couple years ago. Right, yeah. With yep. Christina Ricci. With, right, exactly, yep. As uh, Zelda Fitzgerald. And so this is uh, Therese Ann Fowler's new novel, um, which sounds like it'll please all of her fans that read the Fitzgerald novel. It's called A Well Behaved Woman, a novel of the Vanderbilts. It's out in October. Um, it's about the Vanderbilts presiding over Gilded Age New York. And so I think that all the people who read uh, Z and liked her presentation of, um, you know, that era will see more more of this, more of the same with uh, Gilded Age New York in uh, this novel. And then there are some also some other big names like um, Kate Atkinson has a new novel about um, a spy, a World War II spy novel called Transcription that's out in September. Um, and Barbara Kingsolver has a new novel in October that is called Unsheltered, and that's about a woman who uh, investigates the history of the house that she inherits in uh, New Jersey and finds a kindred spirit in the past. So those will also be really big because all these authors have big followings. One of the books that I that I'm particularly actually the book that I'm most excited about, and I haven't gotten I haven't gotten to read a lot of these yet because we're still uh, a little bit out from the fall, but um, one book I have read is called Friday Friday Black, and that is a debut story collection, and it's by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, and that is out in October, and it's it's just a remarkable book that um, has so much energy and uh, momentum, and um, he he sort of has these imaginative conceits and just imbues them with so much power and uh meaning and i was just floored story after story uh and i guess um he studied at syracuse with george saunders and you can see a little bit of that that influence influence, yeah um there's one story about um a an amusement park that lets people sort of enact their neighborhood watch fantasies uh and enter an augmented reality and hunt uh, intruders played by minority actors. So there's a definite threat of race and, um, uh, some, some challenging issues are addressed in a lot of these stories, but they're, they're really definitely handled. And, um, there's another one about a, uh, school shooting where the gunman and the victim are trapped in a sort of shared purgatory and they have to like converse in order to save this other person who's still on earth. And so there's so there are these like imaginative uh, leaps, and, but there is a definite human element to all of them. And uh, yeah, I read I read it a few weeks ago, and uh, it was really really an amazing collection and one of the more like uh, 
arresting debuts I've read in a while. So that one, that one's a particular highlight for me, and that's called Friday Black. It's interesting because, you know, as we know, George Saunders is is best known as a short story writer as mm-hmm. well, with the, with the exception of the most recent novel. And so here's one of his students who is debut is a collection of short stories, which we don't see a lot of, I guess, mm-hmm. at least at least uh, bubbling up to the top. Yeah, and I think that um, this has a chance to be like the big. Uh, I mean, yeah, the debut story collections are definitely less sexy than novels, but um, like last year, we had a couple that were pretty big, like um, Carmen Maria Machado, her bar- right. her body and other parties, uh, and Leslie Arima, what it means when a man falls out of the sky. Right. Um, so those those were some big story collections that were debuts, and this one I think has a chance to be that this year, um, particularly given how timely the sub- a lot of the subject matter is. Yeah, it really does. It really does seem so. Um, and I, I did read an interview with him where he um, mentioned some of the stories that he was he ran them by George Saunders because he was still still at Syracuse when he was writing them and. He was like, I'm, I, you know, I'm stealing from you. And George Saunders is like, yeah, I know, but you can do it. These, this is all your territory now. Um, so I think he he was definitely influenced by him. But these stories definitely go in their own yeah their own direction. So I, I got to say, it's also interesting about the Canals Guard. I mean, the sixth volume at the same time in memoir and biography, I'm seeing his various seasons and and the mix of of nonfiction and fiction in each of these you talk about in this one is that long essay within a novel yeah. uh and then he fictionalizes certain parts of his memoir and it's amazing how lucid how bo- how these kind of go along with each other in both fiction category and and memoir right well the really interesting thing about to me the one of the more interesting aspects of this final installment in the my struggle series is he wrote them very quickly um but there was they were first published in um in uh norway where he's like you know the the biggest celebrity at least in the literary scene um and so by the time the sixth he had written the sixth volume and it was he was writing it the first i think one or two maybe three had already been published and so he had already you know built up this huge Mm. following by the time he was even hmm. writing the last one. So the book, the final book addresses how the sudden rise to celebrity aff- affected him and his family, which is a huge, you know, running theme in these books is just how his wife and children are, uh, and, and family members that didn't want him to tell the story are affected by it. So that's a huge element of this last one is just, you can see the consequences starting to catch up with him. Well, in, in, in apparently in fiction, but also nonfiction, because I, if I'm not mistaken, he and his wife are separated now. Yeah. I don't know. I think that he, I mean, I, I know he had a thing with, um, an affair, but I don't know if he's still with the woman right. that he was originally writing. Cause Linda is his wife and I think he's right. still with her, but who's also a novelist. I think yeah. maybe she's a poet, but, um, I'm sorry. I don't know as that detail, but I know she's a writer as well. So, but yeah. again, how this is playing out in, in the life and as he's reflecting on it. So anyway, that sounds all very, very exciting, but were there, I mean, is it in literary fiction? Is it, are you seeing it like just looking at the bigger picture? Are you seeing, you talked about, short stories that there were a couple big ones last year are we seeing that this year or is there are there any other trends that might be um trends are are tough with fiction i yeah. mean there's there are, 
when when they can harness something like um you know immigration or you know like uh friday black does with race like that that's obviously something that's on a lot of people's minds right now but yeah i mean the the trends you know tend to go um all over the place we have a lot of um and as i'm sure rose season in sci-fi um the the uh, sort of dystopian element is still strong and that's been going on for a while um and one of the books that i think is going to be really big for that is actually not out till january but the announcements for the fall includes january right um and that book's called the water cure and that's by sophie mcintosh and um that i believe was just released in the uk um, and got really great reviews and that's about um three young women who are on a, a an island uh, surrounded by barbed wire that their mm. father is keeping them from society on. And uh, the book starts with the father's disappearance. And so the, th- the three sisters on the island are sort of thrown off their normal routine. And uh, that also, the other big plot point is, um, I forget if it's a raft of men or a ship a shipwreck of men land on the island and that also throws their entire uh routine off um so there's comps to like mm-hmm. uh the handmaid's tale um and uh there's like a little element of lord of the flies in there right and um so i think that book in particular will do will do pretty well uh i mean it's a debut so and it's so far out that who knows but right, um right. yeah i think it has a really good chance to to uh to land with readers it's home. interesting that you that you mentioned that trend because I almost don't see a lot of dystopians coming through anymore. Still a few, and maybe they're bigger in young adult fiction still. But in science fiction, we're seeing a lot more people uh, either making the best of a bad situation. You know, like we get a lot of climate change novels, mm-hmm. but they're all sort of like, okay, well, the climate's changed. Now what? And instead of everything going to hell, it's really sort of ordinary people trying their best to get along the way they always have uh, kind of stories. And uh, and then a lot of space exploration stories. So a lot of people just want to get off planet. And uh, again, there are these concerns about uh, what humans are doing to Earth. But uh, there the solution is to go and try to find something better to, to go out to the stars, to go out to other worlds. And uh, that seems to be more, I think, uh, where science fiction is going, a sort of mix of optimism and pragmatism after the the anxiety of the dystopian trend. Gabe, it sounds like a great season ahead of us. Uh, looking forward to, I, I mean, definitely a couple of those that you had mentioned. Uh, I'd like to see people, as you said, carry around the 1,200-page uh, Canals card. And uh, I think the book of short stories that you had talked about Looks pretty exciting uh, and topical. So, uh, Gabe, thank you so much for talking with us about literary fiction and announcements. Thanks, guys. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with C.L. Polk, author of Witchmark. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for brand new episode giving you the inside story of your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 